Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Who here enjoys disaster movies? There's a few. Dante's Peak graced our screens in 1997, followed closely by Deep Impact, 1998. At the same time, Armageddon, how could we deal with such disaster coming, 1998. Then we had to wait just a few years. 2002 brought us the core when the world was going to implode. It was followed closely in 2004 by the the thermal disaster of the day after tomorrow. Then 2009, quite ironically, bought us the movie 2012. I'm not quite sure about that. But one thing is in common. In each of these movies, someone was warning them, weren't they? If you remember, someone was standing up and saying, in essence, the end is nigh. Now, one of my favourite disaster future apocalypse movies has to be Terminator 2. Does anyone there with me? Yes? And you meet in Terminator 2 the prophet Sarah Connor. Uh, She is there. She knows the future. She has seen the future. Someone from the future has come back and told her all about Cyberdyne systems and Skynet and the coming judgment day of nuclear apocalypse. Where do we meet Sarah Connor first up in Terminator 2? She's in an asylum for the insane. No one wants to believe her warning. She's there calling people to get ready to take action. But no one wants to listen. Now, we've been working through Matthew's gospel over the last four or five weeks And we've come to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist and Sarah Connor have lots in common. Can you see it? John the Baptist is standing up and telling people that something is coming, something that you need to get ready for. You need to take action. 
Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist is an interesting character, isn't he? I don't know how you find him. Uh, No one has come out with the John the Baptist diet book. Uh, We have lots of Christian diet books, but wild honey and locusts are probably not the top of your menu. Uh, Neither have they come out with the John the Baptist fashion statement, camel hair and leather belts. Great appeal, I know. Uh, Maybe next week you can all grace Trinity Hills uh, with your camel hair clothes and your leather belts and itchy, I'm sure. Uh, He lives out in the wilderness of Judea and he preaches out in the wilderness. He is a wild character. For those familiar with the Old Testament, he's meant to uh, evoke an image of another prophet, Elijah, who was a similar kind of wild character. But Matthew, Matthew wants to connect John, not so much with Elijah, but with another prophet, Isaiah. And so he reminds us characteristic Matthew language here. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, if you've got a Bible like mine, you can look down the bottom and there's a little note uh, on that verse. And it says Isaiah 40 verse 3. And in Isaiah 40 through to the end of the book, chapter 66, we have the unfolding of God's plans to restore his people and transform not just Israel, but the world. And if we remember back in the beginning of the Bible, God has a plan through the descendants of Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. And here we have Matthew flagging for us that with John the Baptist, this plan is getting into motion. Things are starting to happen. Things are getting exciting. This restoration of God's people and the transformation of the world is coming. Matthew is saying it's coming now. And John the Baptist, he was a preacher with a very simple message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's there in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven has come near. I'm sure John said a few more things than this, but that is how Matthew summarizes it. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, he's not talking about a kingdom with boundaries, like a nation. What he's talking about is the rule of God's king. Matthew is saying, and John is, Matthew is recording John saying, the king is on the doorstep. The king has arrived. God's rule is breaking in. And we see it. If you read further on in Matthew's gospel, you see the incredible authority of Jesus as a teacher. You see his power over sickness, his power over evil, his power over nature. You see this amazing authority and John is saying, this one, this king is coming and he's coming with both salvation and judgment. 
Those two things always come together. When God saves, he always judges. It's like thunder and lightning. They don't happen independently of each other. As God saves, so he judges. And so John is preaching a message of warning. He's preaching a message, if you look down in verse 7, that is of the coming wrath. He's attacking the Pharisees and the Sadducees there. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's speaking of the judgment of God on human sin. What is sin? John Stott, the English preacher, defined it as our attempt to be God and our refusal to be human. We don't want God to be God and we don't want to be what he made us to be. Our attempt to be God and his refusal to be human. And God is coming, John is saying, to bring judgment against sin. Becky Pippett talks about God's wrath like this. She says it's not a cranky explosion, like God just gets fed up with us, but it's a settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God is angry. God is rightfully angry at the destruction that sin causes. It's like someone has taken the Mona Lisa and defaced it. God's great artwork has been destroyed and defaced by our sin. And it's not just some people that John is warning. It's not some people that the wrath is coming against. Because who is John preaching to? He's preaching to Israel. He's preaching to God's people. And he's telling them that they need to repent. He's telling them that they need to get ready. And so by implication, we can see that the judgment of God is a threat to all humanity. And he speaks of it. Verse 10, he talks about the trees being cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, he speaks about the chaff being burnt with unquenchable fire. The images of the judgment of God are not pretty. And John is warning, the king is coming. The king is coming with both judgment and salvation. But if you notice, John's message is predominantly about judgment. Now, some of you Maybe you're not a Christian person this morning, or maybe you are, and you wrestle with this, you object. You're actually saying, look, Cameron, this this whole judgment thing, it's very primitive, really, isn't it? It's quite unpleasant, quite happy with a God of love, a God that brings salvation. Why do we actually need this? Can I give you, I can give you lots of quotes, lots of reasons Can I give you two reasons to think about why even if you don't like this idea, even if you object vehemently to the fact that God will judge, 
why you actually need a God who will judge. Let me give you two reasons. The first reason is, if you don't have a God who has objective standards, God has his word. He says, this is right, this is wrong, and he judges against it. If you don't have that objective standard, you don't have any reason for saying anything is right or wrong. It's all just a matter of human opinion. My opinion against your opinion. If there is no objective judgment, morality goes out the window. And you know what? Atheists acknowledge this. This man, Julian Beghini, wrote a book, or wrote an article actually, called Yes, Life Without God Can Be Bleak. And he says this, for the religious, at least, there is some bedlock belief that give a reason to believe that the morality, morality is real and will prevail. We have a reason to believe that what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. And it's not just a matter of my opinion. In an atheist universe, Beguini goes on, morality can be rejected without a clear, compelling reason to believe in its reality. And that's exactly what will sometimes happen. People can walk away from the common belief that this is right or this is wrong just based on their opinion. If you want to argue for morality, and I think most of us do, you actually need a God who judges. Pick that up with me afterwards if you want to take that further. But let me give you another one. If you don't have a God who judges, revenge goes on and on and on. If you want to break a cycle of violence and bring peace, not just the Middle East, but your own personal life, if you want to stop reacting to people who hurt you by hurting them in return, you need a God who judges. Tim Keller says it like this. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. We don't want them to get away with it, do we? And if I don't trust that God will set all things right in judgment, I will take action. Believing in a God who judges is not primitive, it's not regressive. It actually allows us to let go of hate and revenge and leave that to God. It lets us forgive. It gives us a motive for compassion. I'll refer to that a little bit later on. John calls... Israel, he calls God's people to get ready for God's king. And what we see is two reactions that are there for us in the text. Let's start with the negative. John looks up and he sees two groups of people who normally hate each other's guts. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees were just devout lay people and the Sadducees, they were the religious elites. They were the priests and they really didn't like each other very much. 
But the one thing they didn't like more than each other, as you will see in Matthew's gospel, is the Jesus movement. And these guys turn up. Why are they there? Out in the wilderness. What are they doing? Are they checking up on John? Are they coming themselves like the crowds out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Transjordan region? Are they coming for baptism? Well, the text is deliberately, I think, ambiguous. Literally, what is written is they were coming to the baptism. Were they coming for baptism or were they coming to look and see what was happening? We don't really know. But John is not impressed with this audience. I don't know about you, but I was not in any way tempted this morning to get up here and say, you brood of vipers. I don't imagine you take to that very well, you children of snakes. In the background, perhaps, is a reference to Satan portrayed in scripture as a serpent. You children of the devil. Jesus wasn't afraid of calling his enemies by that name. You presume to come here, John says, for baptism. You presume to come and check out what I'm doing. And John goes on the offensive. He attacks their false foundation. He attacks the reasons that they have to trust that they are okay with God. The first thing he attacks is if they go for baptism, their trust in that act. What does he say? It's there in verse 8 or verse 7 as well. Who, f- who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John says... Don't think that getting baptised by me in the Jordan means anything if it's not matched with a heart response. If this act of baptism is not matched with repentance, with a true change of life, with a reorienting life around God, with giving up our attempt to be God, and our refusal to be human. If life, if their new life is not characterized by fruit, John says they will be cut down and cut, cast into the fire. Repentance is this reorienting life around God. Think about it like this. We have a solar system, don't we? And it all roughly stays in the right place because it all orbits around the same centre. Yes? Pretty much so anyway. You don't have an issue where Mars stands up and goes, no, 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 I want to be the centre. And Mercury says, no, 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 I want to be the centre. And Saturn stands up, no, no, I'm bigger than a lot of you. I want to be the centre. I've got rings, you see. Uh, And Earth says, look, I've got life. I'm Hannibal. I should be the centre. Can you imagine what would happen? It just wouldn't hold together. Sin is a refusal to let the sun be the centre. A refusal to let God be the king. And repentance is coming back and orbiting the true centre of your life. 
John says, baptism is only good if it's coupled with this inward transformation. He goes on. He says, don't think you can say to yourselves in verse 9, we have Abraham as our father. Don't look to your religious pedigree. Don't look and say, look at all the stuff that we've done. Look at all the stuff that we've got. He could have expanded it to anything that we do. He could have said, don't think that all the good works that you've done, don't think about all the Bible reading you've undertaken. Don't think about the hours you've spent in prayer. Don't think that those things make you acceptable before God. John attacks the Pharisees and the Sadducees and anything that we might put up to say, I am good enough for God. That's the negative. What's the positive? Well, it's there in verses 5 and 6. The crowds. People went out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. These men and women, boys and girls, came from all over. They heard the message, the kingdom has come near, repent, reorder your life with God at the centre. Be baptised as an outward sign of what is actually happening inwardly in your heart as Christ, as God is once again enthroned as king. Repent and be baptised. As they come, they do what no Jew would normally consider would be necessary. Because baptism was something that non-Jews, Gentiles, did to come into Israel. So if you were a Greek or a Persian or an Arab and you wanted to become part of God's people, the baptism rite was for you. God's people didn't need to do that. They were already in. But what the crowds were acknowledging and what John was preaching was that each of us, our default position is not in but out. And they were submitting to baptism to represent a coming in, a need to come in. And not only that, they were confessing their sins. Imagine, imagine that I borrowed your car. And I came in this morning and I've taken a photo on my phone and there's your car. No insurance. One of us has to pay, don't we? I'm really sorry. I've wrapped your car around a pole. Someone has to pay. As Israel was coming and being baptised and confessing their sins, they were saying... Spiritually speaking, I've wrapped God's car around the pole. What option do they have? They can pay the price that John tells us is wrath and fire, judgment. Or they can throw themselves 
on God's mercy. They can appeal to God's grace. They don't turn around and go, look, I've driven hundreds of hours, thousands of hours before this and never had a a scratch. They don't appeal to their driving record. They don't appeal to, hey, I'm just a really nice person. Surely it doesn't really matter, does it? It's a car. They don't do that. They confess their sins. They repent. And they throw themselves on God's grace. There's no pride. This is why believing in a God who judges doesn't make us judge others, lets us let go, because we recognise that if we are forgiven, if we are not guilty, it is on the basis of God's grace and not on our merit. They cast themselves on God's mercy. They cast themselves before the king and beg his forgiveness. Now, John, John is like a herald. He's telling them to get ready. The king is coming. He's bringing salvation and judgment. And it takes no guesses that this king is Jesus. And Jesus comes not just as gentle Jesus meek and mild. But Jesus comes with the winnowing fork in hand, ready to divide the wheat from the chaff. He comes to wield the axe to cut down the tree that bears no fruit and cast it into the fire. He comes, as John says, to baptise, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The coming one is so powerful that John is not worthy to do the least task for him. The coming one is Christ, God's King. This baptism, this baptism truly will bring them in. This baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire will refine them rather than consume them, will bring them in and change the heart so that true fruit can be born. And if you skip to the end, you see that this baptism is entrusted to his people. You see that this message, this preaching about the king and the kingdom and a need to respond is entrusted To the disciples, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are given that message. We, in a very real sense, are heirs of John the Baptist. And we bring a warning, but also a message of hope. The king has come. Judgment and salvation are coming. How do we know? Because Christ has died and risen again. Why is this a message of hope? Because the judge himself submitted to judgment. True justice submitted to injustice as the king was rejected. The one fruitful tree 
was cut down and cast into the fire so that we, we might know only the gentle cleansing of the Holy Spirit. This one, this one alone deserved acceptance but was excluded for us. That is the message that we can preach. That is the message that in embryonic form John preached. The king is here. He brings salvation because he experienced damnation for us. Brothers and sisters, guests, the king is coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do warn. In your love and grace, you give us a merciful call, a way home through putting our faith in you, in your mercy and grace. And in that grace, you gave us Jesus. You gave us Jesus who was winnowed for us, who was cast into the fire of your wrath, who bore the consequence of our sin so that we might never know it, who was cut down so that we might stand firm, who was treated as fruitless so that we might be fruitful, not by our merits, not by our strength, but by the grace that is ours through your gift of Christ. Father, help us to live lives shaped by this grace, live lives founded on your mercy. Help us to speak words that call others to get ready because the King is coming back. And we pray this in his most precious name. Amen.